This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. October 25, 2013. In a quiet suburb near South London, six plain-clothed police officers waited around the corner from a worn-down apartment complex. They were there to meet two women who claimed to be victims of a cult. For decades, they had lived completely in the shadows. They had told the police over the phone that their leader, Comrade Bala, would be away only for a short time. This was their only chance. The officers waited for the women to emerge from the complex. They wondered if this had all been a hoax. It seemed unreal that here, on this unassuming, tree-lined street, grown women would live under the command of a ruthless cult leader. Then, at precisely 11.15 a.m., two women burst through the front door, carrying shopping carts with the few belongings they owned. The officers immediately whisked the women away to safety. For one of the women, it would be the first day of freedom she had ever known. For the cult of Comrade Bala, it would be the beginning of the end. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're finishing our deep dive into the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought a communist cult founded in 1970s London by Aravindan Balakrishnan, who'd come to be known as Comrade Bala. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. 
head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. The Workers' Institute began in 1974 as a high-minded communist group in London, made up mostly of rebellious graduate students from the London School of Economics. It was founded by Aravindan Balakrishnan, a scholarship student from India who dropped out to lead the institute. His goal? To bring about a revolution in England and launch a new society that mirrored communist China, then under Chairman Mao Zedong. Last week, we talked about Balakrishnan, who referred to himself as Comrade Bala in order to associate himself with previous communist revolutionaries. We discussed Bala's unusual childhood, his charismatic yet narcissistic personality, and how he was inspired by the far-left political scene in London before alienating himself and his followers from the broader movement. This week, we'll take a closer look at the cult and some of its core members including a child who was born and raised within the confines of the Workers' Institute. We'll recount how this child helped bring about the end of the oppressive cult. By 1978, the group's numbers had dwindled in only the fourth year of the Workers' Institute. In terms of the broader movement across the United Kingdom, communism was becoming less popular. But the 15 or so remaining members under Balakrishnan were still active in London, protesting and writing communist publications. Paul Flowers, a member of a rival left-wing group, recalled seeing them around in the beginning of that year. He said, quote, the rest of the left treated them as a joke. We'd come across them handing out Mao leaflets in Brixton town center and would have a good laugh because they were so insane, talking about a peasant revolution in a country like Britain, end quote. But since the members of the Workers' Institute lived together, worked together, and spent all their free time listening to Comrade Bala together, they lacked perspective. As far as Bala himself was concerned, things were going magnificently. His followers were dedicated. He was only in his late 30s and full of confidence and ambition, even if it was an ambition not at all rooted in reality. And then, as we discussed last week, Aravindan Balakrishnan and nine of the Institute's members were incarcerated for assaulting police officers during a raid of their headquarters in March 1978. Upon their release at the beginning of 1979, the Workers' Institute only consisted of seven followers, all young women in their early 30s. Comrade Bala had expelled the other, mostly male, members out of fear and paranoia over being shown up by male competitors. The seven followers were his most dedicated disciples. By this point, they'd been following Balakrishnan's command for five years. Such devotion had thrown them into the fray of large-scale protests and exposed them to prison. The experience of being arrested and thrown in jail had solidified their belief that the British authorities were corrupt and not to be trusted. So upon their release, these women felt that they could only trust Comrade Bala with their lives. Bala used that trust to convince them to go completely underground with him in order to escape the fascist state. In the early months of 1979, the Workers' Institute constantly moved between apartments around South London. At the same time, Balakrishnan commanded the women to cease contact with their families. 
Those family members were either fascist agents, he explained, or if they were not, then their being in contact with the Workers' Institute would cause fascist agents to harm them. Going off the grid served more than one purpose for Comrade Bala. It also helped him further manipulate his followers on a deeper level. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Dr. Robert Cialdini, when analyzing the strategies of infamous cult prophets, explained, quote, The most influential leaders are those who know how to arrange group conditions to allow the principle of social proof to work maximally in their favor, end quote. Social proof is the idea that a person will look to other people around them to determine what is true or correct in a given situation. When Bala isolated his seven followers from their families, the only other people they trusted, they could only look to him to determine what was true. One follower, Aisha Wahab, recalls how she felt appreciation for Bala's guidance, unaware that she was in the process of being brainwashed. She said, quote, I thought he was great to have been able to clarify our minds as to what to do with our lives, end quote. Aisha was one of Bala's oldest, most loyal followers. She had come to the UK in 1968 at 24 years old on a scholarship to study quantity surveying, a construction trade job. She ended up inspired by Balakrishnan's rhetoric instead. Aisha was like Bala in a lot of ways. A student from Southeast Asia who'd come to London on scholarship, she no doubt had connected with his personal story as well as his aims to topple imperialist Britain. Within the same year she arrived, she'd given up her career goals and joined his cause, devoting her time to helping organize his meetings and supporting his publications. Over a decade later, in 1979, Aisha, now 35, was still entirely devoted to Comrade Bala. He designated her as one of the few wage earners who left the apartment every day to support the Workers' Institute. Aisha got staffed in a department store and worked long hours to pay rent. Another long-standing member who was charged with working to support the cause was Josephine Harravel. Josie, as she liked to be called, was the daughter of John Harravel, one of the famed Bletchley Park scientists who helped break the Nazis' Enigma code during World War II. Josie was a naturally brilliant violinist who attended the Royal College of Music in London in the mid-1970s. It was during that time in 1976 that a boyfriend brought her to a lecture hall at the University College of London. Alongside 200 other people, Josie saw Comrade Bala lecture for the first time and was immediately hooked. She thought Bala had the air of an Indian mystic as he lectured about the fascist state and revolution in Britain. It invigorated her in a way that a lifetime around conventional intellectuals had not. Josie later recalled, quote, I can't ever forget it. I grew up with my father, who was supposed to have one of the best brains in Britain, but my mind was not excited. Aravindan really excited my mind, end quote. Josie quickly became a devoted member of the Workers' Institute. She was then expelled from the Royal College for wearing a Chairman Mao badge and disregarding school authority. Her commitment to the cause became rock solid after she had a falling out with her parents, who were staunch patriots of England. They would even later write Josie out of their will. 
But none of this fazed Josie, because by the time she was released from prison in 1979, she cared only for Comrade Bala and the Workers' Institute. She recalled, quote, I began to look upon the other members of the collective as my family. It was the warmth of the collective that really drew me to it, because that is what I was missing, end quote. Josie did not hesitate to follow her fearless leader and go completely off the grid. Josie set out to work alongside Aisha, earning enough money to support the other members. Josie ended up working at an industrial laundry service and never returned to the violin again. Starting around 1980, they were set up in a new apartment in Brixton. This would be their permanent residence from here on out. There, the Workers' Institute started to truly transform from a political group to a cult. With loyal members supporting his lifestyle, Comrade Bala was able to throw all of his energy into establishing despotic control of the group. The remaining members who didn't go to work stayed indoors. Every day they had to attend Balakrishnan's lectures, standing at attention, sometimes for three to four hours at a time. Anyone who sat down was punished. Psychology professor John G. Clark Jr. proposes that successful cult leaders develop certain methods to exploit their followers. He describes how leaders purposely keep their disciples occupied all the time as a means of manipulating them. Specifically, in-group ecstatic activities or meditation, obsessive praying, constant lecturing or preaching, or lack of sleep to maintain the mind in a constantly debilitated state. Put simply, this ceaseless activity was fatiguing, which helped Bala control his followers. Limbala wasn't parroting the texts and speeches of his hero, Mao Zedong. He was explicating on how he would be the new world leader of the coming global communist society. And by this point, his followers believed it. They believed he was capable of almost anything. Aisha Wahab listened to Comrade Bala's lectures whenever she was not working. She recalled his synchronizations theory, which was Bala's irrational idea that his entire existence correlated to important moments throughout history. According to Aisha, Bala's only logic to support that claim was, quote, nothing exists in isolation. Everything has its consequences. That's all I understand. I just accept it because it's beyond my comprehension. End quote. In reality, Balakrishnan wanted to create a self-contained world that matched his sense of grandiose self-importance, and it was working. To the rest of the world, the Workers' Institute didn't even exist. Bala's narcissistic personality disorder was completely unchecked. This total control manifested itself in a variety of ways. At any given time, all the women in the house had to be at Bala's every beck and call. This ranged from making him food to giving him massages, even turning the shower on and off for him. Anytime Bala discovered another synchronization, like a politician dying or a natural disaster that he claimed he had caused, one of his loyal followers had to log it immediately in his ledger. In later court proceedings, Balakrishnan claimed that these women voluntarily did whatever they could to support him because they understood how important his work was going to be for the revolution. But his demands extended far beyond volunteer work. 
Any sort of laughter was banned in the Workers' Institute. Comrade Bala also enforced compulsory afternoon collective-wide naps as part of his theory on staying healthy. He didn't believe in doctors or modern medicine, but thought that remaining inside the apartment at all times was a way of extending one's life. One of his favorite mantras, apparently, was, captive animals live longer. And by 1980, the group had found a permanent incognito apartment in South London to set up permanent residence. Unless a member worked, they were very likely to stay inside 24 hours a day. And now that the cult had laid down roofs, they weren't even able to get outdoors during one of their frequent moves. Adding to the oppressive atmosphere, Comrade Bala frequently used physical violence to enforce his long list of rules. But more manipulatively, he encouraged his followers to report each other's misdemeanors in order to curry favor. These misdemeanors ranged from being too drowsy in the morning to praising another member's hair. One follower recalled, quote, everyone kept a hawk's eye on everyone else in case of any tiny transgression. And if one occurred, the comrades would have a quiet word in A.B.'s ear, end quote. A.B. being Aravindan Balakrishnan. To ensure that his seven followers never banded against him, Comrade Bala also created rules against any two members spending too much time together. It created an environment of fear, one follower, who later left the cult, described it, quote, The truth was that everybody disliked everybody else, and everybody was scared. If ever two people happened to get along, it was for the sole purpose of putting down a third, end quote. But there was one member who would rise above the nasty, near-constant competition within the cult and become Conrad Bala's favorite, at least for a time. Her fall from grace would be nothing less than deadly, and it would transform the cult forever. Coming up, we'll learn more about Comrade Bala's secret affair. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. South London, 1980. By its sixth year, the Workers' Institute had transformed from political communist cell to full-blown cult. There were no more publications or protests, only around-the-clock praise of their leader, Comrade Bala. Balakrishnan had brainwashed his seven female followers into believing he would be the next world leader, and he kept them in line with a ruthless combination of physical abuse and manipulation. He had transitioned from a leader who recruited through charisma to one who ruled through terror. Late in 1980, there was a shift within the cult. Balakrishnan's wife, Chanda, had to be hospitalized for several weeks due to complications from diabetes. No doubt some of her symptoms arose because Bala generally kept everyone from seeing the doctor. But in this case, the situation became severe enough to warrant a trip to the hospital. While she was gone, Bala began an affair with the cult's youngest member, 
Sean Davies. Sean had joined the Workers' Institute in the late 1970s. She came from a decidedly posh background. Sean had attended the famously prestigious boarding school, Cheltenham Ladies College, after which she earned a law degree before deciding to continue her graduate studies further. Sean had been studying for a PhD at the London School of Economics when she crossed paths with Aravindan Balakrishnan. Like Josephine Harivel, she became enthralled with Bala's charismatic lectures and his utopian ideals, and moved into the Workers' Institute HQ, back when it was still a bookstore. Back in 1978, not long before the big raid and incarceration, an old school friend of Sean's met up with her one last time. The friend's name was Sally Unwin. Sally remembered Sean as a very academic person, a deep thinker, which is why she was so shocked to find Sean had transformed. Sally said that Sean was, quote, literally dressed in Maoist clothes with the Chinese communist radio on, and we all had to listen to it. She kept telling me that the end of the world would come from the East and we'd all be destroyed, end quote. Unlike some immigrants in the group who shared Bala's background, Sean did not identify with Balakrishnan's personal story. Instead, she was likely attracted to how radically different he was from everything she had known. Prestigious schools, graduate degrees, these things played into the social expectations of the upper crust. Joining the Workers' Institute had been a chance to rebel. By 1980, it was revealed that sexual attraction played a role as well. By all accounts, even from other victims in the cult, Balakrishnan and Sean Davies' relationship was consensual. Even after his wife Chanda returned to the collective, Bala and Sean's sexual relations continued. Chanda has never been interviewed on record, so it's hard to say one way or the other whether she was aware of what was going on. But one has to imagine that in such a small apartment with limited privacy, she knew something was up. Whether she was in willful denial is another question. Regardless, this new relationship seemed to awaken something terrible in Balakrishnan. It wasn't long after he began his affair with Sean that he began to sexually abuse the other members of the Workers' Institute. Two other followers who have remained anonymous claim that Balakrishnan first beat and then sexually assaulted them in the early 80s and continued to do so until they fled the cult over a decade later. Balakrishnan tried to cover up his heinous actions with ideological rhetoric. He claimed that in order to succeed in building a new communist world, first his followers needed to be cleansed of bourgeois culture and impure thoughts. Ballas said his physical love would accomplish this cleansing, and if they resisted, he'd respond with physical abuse. To further attempt to control these victims, Bala came up with his ultimate scare tactic. As we've discussed previously, many cult leaders have narcissistic personality disorder. According to the DSM-5, a defining trait of the disorder is the preoccupation with fantasies of power. This repetitive fantasizing leads to a separation from reality. For Comrade Bala, this all culminated with the creation of Jackie. Jackie was an acronym for Jehovah, Allah, Christ, Krishna, and Immortal Eshwaran. The last of these was a scholar and spiritual teacher from Balakrishnan's birthplace of Kerala, India. Balakrishnan claimed that Jackie was an all-powerful, deadly computer satellite 
that only he could interact with. According to Bala, Jackie was capable of killing them if they disobeyed him or even harbored bad thoughts. It played into his delusional synchronizations as well. All these notions rested on the idea, for his followers, that Comrade Bala had superpowers they could not witness up close. They would only ever see the aftermath. For example, around 1982, Aisha Wahab received a letter from her brother in Malaysia. Her brother was upset, as you might expect, with Aisha's situation in the Workers' Institute. Comrade Bala read the letter and decried him a fascist and a nasty person. Aisha recalled, quote, Then a few years after that, my brother passed away. So I said to myself, Okay, that's Jackie's work. End quote. Balakrishnan convinced his followers that Jackie was a mind control device as well. If they had any sort of disloyal thought, Jackie would find ways to punish them. One follower recalls how deep her fear went. She said, quote, There was no hiding from AB's mind control machines. Any thought transgression was soon punished, for example, by my becoming ill. End quote. This follower was so profoundly brainwashed that when she became sick, she automatically attributed it to Comrade Bala's powers, as well as her own guilt. During the early to mid-1980s, Balakrishnan had an iron grip over his followers that seemed unshakable. His delusions and demands expanded. Bala convinced his devotees that their fascist enemies could send harmful waves through the telephone, so they were never to use it without his permission. For the few members who left to work jobs each day, like Josie and Aisha, they were never to discuss the Workers' Institute in public, since the fascists were always surveilling them. And they always had to travel in pairs, because they would face violence everywhere they went. As ludicrous as these conspiracies sound, Balakrishnan earnestly believed them, Psychologist Len Oakes, in his book Prophetic Charisma, The Psychology of Revolutionary Religious Personalities, theorizes that cult leaders create psychological blind spots in order to seem at one with their calling. They split their perspective so as to ignore any apparent truths that would contradict the image they have of themselves. In this case, Balakrishnan preferred to believe a fantastical lie about a killer satellite and a shadow government, rather than accept the reality of how little power he had. This ever-worsening environment continued through the early 1980s, all within the small flat in South London. The Workers' Institute went unnoticed by its neighbors and became forgotten by the police, who had once monitored them so closely. To the outside world, the Workers' Institute was nothing more than a strange political footnote in history. But inside the cult, things were about to change drastically, because in 1982, Sean Davies became pregnant. At this point, she was the second in command as a result of her continued affair with Comrade Bala. One member recalls that she was especially disliked because she was, quote, Cold and disciplinarian, top dog among the comrades as A.B.'s foremost follower, end quote. Although interestingly, the same follower also noted that Sean acted differently around Bala's wife, Chanda. Sean always tried to please her, but apparently Chanda only gave her dirty looks, no matter how nice Sean was. Amidst that ongoing tension, Bala decided that he would try to cover up the truth about Sean's pregnancy with an absurd lie, that Sean was just swelling up with gas. 
Whether they believed him or not is impossible to say. Certainly the lie was no more delusional than things Bala had already told his followers about. The difference was that this lie could not be contained. On January 7, 1983, Sean Davies gave birth to a baby girl. And from her very first day in this world, that child would be thrust into a fantastically strange and difficult environment, one that would be impossible for any of us to imagine. Comrade Bala did not welcome the baby girl home in typical fashion. Instead, he christened her existence with a complete lie. Rather than accept the fact that he was her father, he claimed that she wasn't anyone's child in particular, but instead a communal child. Each member shared responsibility in her care. He even came up with an additional name for the group to reflect this new stage they were entering. Bala called it AB's CCFP, which stood for Aravindan Balakrishnan's Communist Collective Family Pilot Unit. Similar to the Workers' Institute's full title, it was a bit overwritten. Bala explained that Sean had somehow been impregnated not by him, but by his military satellite, Jackie. According to him, the baby was a product of electronic warfare. He never really explained that further. The only thing that was clear was that he was not taking personal responsibility. According to one follower, the day the baby was brought home, the house was filled with fear. Not because they would have to take care of a child, but because they were afraid that the baby's disrespectful cries would upset their leader. Even as they were put in charge of a newborn baby, the women cared only for Balakrishnan. After nine years of devotion to the Workers' Institute, these followers thought of nothing other than Bala and his grand plans. Not only was the baby the communal child of the Workers' Institute, Balakrishnan then proclaimed she would be their greatest project, the next generation of perfect communist citizens who would populate the supposed new world order Comrade Bala was going to start. Coming up, we'll hear how Bala's daughter would eventually be his downfall. Now back to the story. In early 1983, Comrade Bala brought his brand new baby daughter home to the commune, where his seven followers were tasked with her upbringing. She was meant to be the beginning of the new world order, a perfect communist citizen, unmarred by the fascist state. To match this fantasy, Comrade Bala named this baby Prem Malpinduzi. Prem means love in Hindi, which is Comrade Bala's first language. Malpinduzi appears to be a combination of the Swahili word for revolution, Mapinduzi, along with Mao. Mao is, of course, the first name of Balakrishnan's all-time idol and personal obsession, Chairman Mao Zedong. Since then, Prem has changed her name to Katie Morgan Davies. Katie after her idol, singer Katy Perry, and Morgan Davies after her mother's family. From here on out, we'll refer to her as Katie. Unlike the other members who had been convinced over time of Comrade Bala's strength through his inadvertent brainwashing, Katie was born under his control and had no other reality to contrast with her own. She automatically and honestly believed that there was a deadly satellite named Jackie that could kill her if she was ever disobedient. From a very young age, Katie was terrified of the outside world. Her natural sense of childhood curiosity was suffocated by the lies she was told. Specifically, Bala told Katie that previous members of the Institute were abducted by neighbors, 
These supposed neighbors were actually evil fascists who then executed their victims. The threat felt so real to Katie that she barely ever looked out the window or dared to peek over their garden wall. Katie has since written a memoir of her childhood in captivity called Caged Bird. In it, she recalls one moment when she was a small child. Bala decided to punish her by leaving her outside the front door. She became hysterical with fear, assuming she was about to be murdered by fascist neighbors or even the satellite, Jackie. Later, after she was brought back inside, she recalls how she rationalized what happened. Jackie must have spared her because it was Balakrishnan himself who placed her outside. Katie recalls that from a young age, she hated Comrade Bala. But this was tempered by her absolute fear of him. The relationship was further complicated by the cult's mentality that no one mattered but Bala himself. In her memoir, Katie recounts how the first words she ever wrote were, I love beloved comrade Bala. For most children, their first written sentence would be a big accomplishment. But Katie recalls the moment as something much darker. She said, quote, I didn't glance up at the comrade teaching me for praise. The achievement wasn't mine. It was thanks to comrade Bala, and it would be self-love to think otherwise, end quote. Self-love in a normal context would mean self-worth, a positive thing for a child. But in the Workers' Institute, love for anyone other than Comrade Bala was a sin, even a child's love for themselves. Despite these horrible conditions and her fear of the outside, Katie recalled how she would pass by the window and cry as she saw children playing on a swing because she knew she was not allowed to join in. It was a terribly isolated life. The other members of the Institute taught Katie to read and write. Once she started reading, she was able to find solace in the literature from Balakrishnan's personal library. Katie has said, quote, There were books about psychology, philosophy, politics, but Bala put them there for show. End quote. It seems Katie was the only one who actually read each and every book. For Balakrishnan, the library was a superficial display of knowledge to his followers, a part of his image as a wise political revolutionary. Despite Katie's attempts to find joy through books, her toughness was always being put to the test. Comrade Bala enforced a brutal and oppressive household environment. Every morning, Katie and the others had to sing songs of praise to Bala with lyrics like, Do what you want if you want to die. Do what A.B. says if you want to live. In Bala's mind, the songs were meant to be akin to communist anthems. As if the forced activities were not enough, emotions were constantly being repressed. Laughter was banned, and there was to be no talking at dinner. Even worse than all that, Katie reported that beatings were a regular feature of life within the collective. If there was ever any supposed dissent or disobedience on her part, violence would ensue. According to Katie, Balakrishna described his abuse as a way of being kind. He was battling against her internal negative forces in order to save her from herself. Katie claimed that Bala would say, look how you've hurt me, while he beat her or any other member, even as he clearly took a sadistic pleasure in what he was doing. 
Dr. David Finkelhor, a professor of sociology and director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center in New Hampshire, has tried to analyze how parents rationalize the abuse of their children. He said, quote, Parents may tell themselves they're protecting their children from the corruption of an awful society or that children are evil and need to be chastised, end quote. Comrade Bala's extremely negative and paranoid view of the rest of the society as a fascist shadow government no doubt played a large role in his verbal and physical abuse of Katie. Perhaps the worst aspect of all of this was that her biological mother, Sean Davies, treated Katie the harshest. Sean would pretend to call the authorities to take Katie away as a form of punishment. Even worse, Katie recalls, she was the person who most frequently reported me to A.B. for the least infringement, and I despised her. Despite this brutal nightmare of a childhood, Katie would show her resilience in the years to come. From the 1980s and into the 1990s, Katie grew from a child to teenager, but the despotically controlled environment under Bala did not change. In some ways, Balakrishnan may inadvertently have been trying to force Katie to have the exact opposite childhood of what he had. His parents had showered him with adulation, even told him he had superhuman powers. Bala never gave Katie praise once for anything and put her down verbally and physically any chance he got. Katie was not the only one who was miserable within the Workers' Institute. Sean Davies was growing depressed. Around 1996, when Katie was 13 years old, Sean started to become less obedient to Bala. Even as a young teenager, Katie recognized that Sean's mental state was becoming fragile. In her memoir, Katie wrote... Sean was acting really oddly, saying she's a devil, and was starting to behave really unlike herself. Leading up to Christmas of that year, Katie recounted a disturbing incident one night. There was screaming. Apparently, Sean had tried to stab herself with a knife. To keep her from injuring herself, Comrade Bala resorted to emotional manipulation. He brought up Sean's father, who had killed himself when Sean was a teenager. Bala repeatedly claimed that his suicide was all Sean's fault. He then told Sean that only through total obedience to him and to the Workers' Institute could she hope to redeem herself. But the tactic didn't work. On the morning of Christmas Eve, 1996, Katie recalls walking into the kitchen to find Sean lying on the floor. She remembers a chilling scene. Quote, her hands and legs were tied and she was gagged. Balakrishnan and Chanda were both shouting at Sean. She had tried to run out the door. That's why she was tied up, because she was trying to escape, end quote. Comrade Bala refused to let Sean go, it seemed, no matter the cost to her. At this point, Bala had been a cult leader in private for nearly two decades. He was obviously done trying to actually change the world. Rather... He was willing to do anything to maintain the fantasy world he had built for himself within the confines of his home. Sean, like the other women, was an essential source of where he drew his power from. Sean was released from her restraints a few hours later, after Balakrishnan determined she had calmed down. But on that very same night, on Christmas Eve 1996, Sean Davies fell from the second-floor bathroom window of their terraced apartment in South London. She wound up in a coma and suffered severe brain damage. 
In later reports, journalists declared that this was an apparent suicide attempt. While that is likely, we can't rule out that it wasn't another attempt to escape. Regardless, Sean was brought to the hospital where she laid in a coma for seven months. Apparently, during this time, Sean's family reached out to try and get in contact with her. However, they did not know she was injured so severely. On Balakrishnan's instructions, Josie Harravel lied to Sean's family. Rather than admit to the dire situation, Josie said Sean was traveling in India and sends her love. Bala figured that her family would accept that lie and leave it alone. Then, in the summer of 1997, Sean Davies died. Aisha Wahab was the only one present at the hospital at the time. At the inquest into her death, the coroner asked Aisha whether Sean had any children. Aisha said no. Aisha later justified her actions, saying, quote, We definitely didn't want Katie to be taken away and not participate in building a new society, end quote. To Aisha, even amidst Sean's death, there was still a strong belief in Bala's vision of a new world. Later, Aisha would admit that grief and guilt caught up with her to some degree. After she left the cult, she admitted that the thought of leaving the Workers' Institute had crossed her mind several times. But every time she started to think about how she would exit, she quickly realized she had nowhere to go. She recounted, I had nobody outside. I had lost contact with my family. I had no money. I had no job and I might have been deported. Dr. Kathleen Taylor, a cognitive neuroscientist, asserts that a core strategy across these groups is isolation. It plays an important role in the brainwashing process during the beginning stages of a recruit's indoctrination. But in Aisha's case, and for many others, the lifelong isolation creates huge obstacles down the road, should they ever consider leaving the cult. For those institute members who even still had passports, Bala kept them confiscated at all times. In the years following Sean's death, the cult's environment continued to worsen. In 2004, tragedy struck the Workers' Institute yet again. Okar Ong, a Malaysian national who had joined the cult with Aisha Wahab back in the 70s, apparently hit her head on a kitchen cabinet, and a dire situation ensued. O was from Malaysia, like Bala. She had long worked as a nurse to help support the Workers' Institute. This might sound odd, given Bala's abhorrence of modern medicine, but he was nothing if not a man of contradictions. Either way, Katie fondly remembers O as one of the few members who ever pushed back against Comrade Bala. She recalled, quote, I only ever remember O talking back to him, unexpectedly defending herself against whichever charge had been brought. Secretly, very secretly, I admired her for having an independent mind, end quote. Katie was there when O hit her head. Twenty minutes later, O started vomiting and asked Bala to call a doctor. In keeping with his harsh, irrational views on medicine, Bala refused to call for help. O became disoriented and eventually fainted going completely catatonic. She laid still for an hour before Balakrishnan finally caved and called an ambulance. It turned out that she had suffered a stroke and died later that day at the hospital. Because there was a death, a routine police inquest ensued. Balakrishnan directed Josie to interview with the police and cover up any mention of the period of time that Bala would not call an ambulance. In the end, there was no suspicion. 
and thus no attention was drawn to the Workers' Institute. Katie Morgan Davies was 21 years old at the time and had already witnessed two deaths while living within the confines of Bala's cult. She was starting to realize that she needed to escape, whatever the cost, or the next death could be hers. Following Okar Ong's death, Comrade Bala actually claimed that it was his Jackie machine who killed her, and not a stroke. This was not the first time Balakrishnan claimed he had deadly superpowers, but it was the first time he actually took responsibility for his own loyal followers' demise. His five remaining followers believed him and felt he must have had his reasons for killing O. But Katie wasn't so convinced. Escaping became a matter of life and death for her, and she began planning an exit. She first attempted to escape in 2005. It was May 2nd. Katie secretly packed her bag as Josie and Aisha went off to work. Shortly after, she waited for Bala to take his morning bath and rushed out the door. At 22 years old, this was the first time Katie Morgan Davies had ever been out in London by herself. It must have been an overwhelming, terrifying experience. Still, she knew she had to find a way out of her situation. Katie made it as far as the local police station, but tragically, the police officer failed to understand her situation. Katie struggled to articulate the full extent of the abuse she suffered from Balakrishnan. Instead, she claimed only that she had run away from home because it was too restrictive. The police officer called Balakrishnan, who immediately came and picked her up. Once they returned home, she was railed against by Bala. He beat her and labeled her a traitor, a criminal, and a fascist agent. But Katie had gotten her first taste of agency and freedom. She wouldn't give up now. She wrote in her journal that night, quote, The day I escape from the prison my father has created will be the day my life really begins, end quote. It wouldn't be until 2013, when Katie was 30 years old, that she'd finally start that new life. By that time, Katie had developed diabetes and was starting to suffer serious health effects as a result. Josie Harravel realized that Katie's health was deteriorating quickly. It worried her so much that Josie decided to help her get out to see a doctor. In October 2013, Josie saw a story about forced marriages on BBC News. At the end, the newsreader gave out a helpline number. Immediately, she knew that was the way she would get Katie out. Josie committed the number to memory. Then, she secretly saved up enough money to buy a cheap mobile phone, smuggled it home, and waited for the perfect moment. After years serving him, Josie had Bala's schedule down pat. She waited until Balakrishnan settled in to watch TV with Chanda, as they did every evening. The moment he did, Josie made the call on her mobile while Katie stood watch. The call took much longer than expected, as Josie was transferred again and again. If Balakrishnan were to walk down the hallway, there'd be nothing Katie could do to stop him. But eventually, Josie connected with the Palm Cove Society, a nonprofit who in turn coordinated with the Metropolitan Police. Within minutes, they came up with a plan. On October 25th, 2013, Josie and Katie had everything packed and hidden beneath their beds. They waited for Comrade Bala to turn his attention elsewhere. Finally, at 11.15 a.m., Balakrishnan left on his usual morning walk. Josie and Katie had timed their escape precisely. 
The second Bella had turned the corner, Josie and Katie ran from the apartment with the few belongings they had. As they got to the corner, they wondered if their plan would work or if they'd made a potentially life-ending mistake. As they turned the corner, they nearly collapsed with relief as they were met by the members of the Palm Cove Society and six plain-clothed officers, as promised. Finally, after 30 years in captivity, Katie Morgan Davies was free of the Workers' Institute. She was set up at the Palm Cove Society's halfway house, and began living her life anew. It took some time, but eventually in 2014, charges were filed against Aravindan Balakrishnan for imprisoning his daughter, along with charges of sexual offenses towards his other members. Previous members of the Workers' Institute came forward and reported the physical and sexual abuse they too had suffered before leaving the cult for good. Even in court, Comrade Bala defended himself in all sorts of ludicrous ways that were consistent with the rationale of his cult leadership. He declared that he had been framed by the British fascist state, and furthermore, that all sexual relations within the cult were consensual, since the women were jealous of each other and vied for his affections. He even ranted about Jackie, and how the court should beware should they decide to convict him. Thankfully, the jury was unmoved, and he was sent to prison for the rest of his life. Since then, Katie Morgan Davies has worked hard to acclimate to an independent life in the free world. As of late, she started attending college in London and moved into an apartment of her own. Interestingly, Balakrishnan still has but one devoted follower, Josie Harravel who has since regretted her decision to free Katie and inadvertently bring Comrade Bala to justice. In recent interviews with British press, Josie has declared Bala's innocence and tried to corroborate his theories about being framed by the British fascist state. She claims to live by his teachings every day. It seems that cult indoctrination can become so ingrained that it can outlive the leader as well as the cult itself. Nevertheless, the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought officially came to an end on December 4, 2015. For Comrade Bala, there would be no revolution, except perhaps for Katie, who summoned the courage to escape and finally experienced freedom from her father's bonds. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or in your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Eli Edelston and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.